happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. You're listening to the EdTech Situation Room, episode 287 for March 29th, 2023. My name is Wes Fryer, and I'm coming you coming to you from Matthews, North Carolina, where it is not snowing outside, but I just love this virtual background. So maybe it's going to snow here year round. Uh, but but uh, and, I, and I am the uh, what middle school innovation teacher teaching robotics, media literacy, and engineering this semester at Providence Day School. And joining me as always is the nerd of the north, where it very well could be snowing because I think the snow just kind of sticks around for a long time. At least that's a rumor I heard. But your yeah. books have depleted, Jason. Did did you have a theft or a burglary? No, or no, they're all still there. Oh, they're there. Yeah, in fact, they've got a couple more because I stupidly <laughs> bought two more last week that who knows when I have time to read. But yes. Uh, greetings from Missoula, Montana, where it's actually raining right now, but it's been rain-snow mix for, well, we had a huge dump of snow over the weekend. Uh, back in Bozeman, Montana, which is about a three-hour drive from here, got three feet of snow um, over the weekend. We had a foot that uh, melted pretty quickly, although it just turned into kind of a an ice hat on top of my car, so that was a, a good time on, on Monday morning trying to get uh, to work. But yes, uh, spring is hopefully here soon. Um, I am... I would say maybe a little unhappy that the um, uh, that the um, um, spring is not sooner here. And I was in Tacoma last week for uh, the Northwest Council for Computer Education Conference, and it was kind of windy and rainy there, but warmer. And it's like, oh, I could use a little warmth in my life. For yes, sure. yes. Well, I mowed mowed the grass in shorts and a t-shirt today. I think it was like 61, but we actually hit 85, maybe? Oh, Is wow. Right? Did we get up that, that high? It was, anyway, it's been in the 70s. It's nice. We're in the Piedmont, which is this area between the mountains and the, and the coast. So it is, uh, it's nice mild weather. Well, I heard that you... Uh, basically more, a grand slam is four runs. And I think you had like 10 that you hit at this keynote. That's what I heard. So what's a, well, what's a 10 run uh, grand slam, whatever that uh, is. Yeah. Maybe a walk-off home run. I know just enough about baseball to know what that is. Um, yeah, it was a, it was a really good, it was a really good speech. I told some of people that, that, um, you know, I really needed like 39 out of 39 little things to come together to make it happen. And in fact, um, you know, part, part of, of Dr. Fryer and I's background in speech is we're both former forensic competitors. So we've done speech and debate events in both high school and college and, um, I, and I don't, I don't do scripted speeches. It's just not been my thing. Um, I've, I've done maybe three or four. In fact, I was just remembering that the first year I did the K-12 online conference back in the day, which was one of our early, early opportunities to work together. I did do a scripted one, one year, cause I was just nervous about, um, uh, uh, doing something for that group. It was my, my first exposure kind of outside the state of Montana and I really wanted to go well, but it took me days to write the script and I just don't have days to do really anything, uh, of, 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 of that level. So, uh, the rest of those that I did was off the cuff, but this was, it wasn't, you know, completely impromptu. I wasn't just given a topic and told to go, although I can speak in that way. Um, I had been working on this for about four months and, um, slides are useful to me. I don't read off of them. In fact, I don't think there were many words about that. Now that I think about it, I don't think there was any words on my slides other than some titles um, to parts of my presentation, but they were all really image driven. But yeah, it was a, it was an extemporaneous speech for sure. And um, 
what I would say is that I did do a practice the day before. It was terrible, but my practices are always terrible because there's no audience. There's nothing to feed off of. There's no laughter. There's no um, a shock, uh, you know, which is something I feed off of a lot as a speaker. And yeah, it went, it went extremely well. I've kind of told a very personal story that I think has pertinence to teachers. And um, I was excited uh, that it went off so well. So I'm very thankful for the wonderful audience uh, in, in Tacoma. I'm also very thankful of the wonderful NCC organization that gave me this chance to to tell my story. Well, we want to let folks know that if you happen to be in any kind of educational technology organization or conference, Dr. Neifer is available to share um, that keynote. And uh, I was I was remiss that I was unable to to travel there. But uh, you know, I didn't think any PD would be in the cards, and I was actually able to to go to Raleigh to our state ed tech conference. Um, so anyway, it was good to, to be able to get in on some. But hopefully, sir, we can find a way for me to meander up to the Mountain Moot or uh, there's an AI conference that uh, MIT is going to be having in the beginning of May. I doubt we'll probably hit that one. But, uh, you know, hopefully Google uh, I.O. We'll just have to see. Well, what are we going to talk about? Hey, it's two weeks in a row. I think we kind of had a record of, of postponements and cancellations there for a while. So it's great to uh, to have two in a row. What are we going to do with this massive list of links that you have done the yeoman's work on this time? Well, um, we're, we've been, as we do uh, throughout the week, scout the internet for interesting news about technology and kind of shoot it through an educational prism. If you're interested in seeing some of our source material, the place to go is our website at, at techsr.com slash links, where you can see really every link we've talked about um, uh, over the last um, uh, was this four or five years, six years we've been doing the podcast. Um, and, uh, sometimes we have breaks, uh, but have generally been pretty, pretty consistent week to week in providing an episode. And uh, if you want to go all the way back, we actually have our old document too, where you can see, um, things going back to episode one. And if you're, if you are a podcast nerd and like the kind of evolution that's happening, um, with podcasts, you can go back and see what our very early documents look like. We were talking about three links a week or part of that. And, uh, you know, we are obviously much more extensive now. So, um, looking back at, at our original doc here, our first episode was uh, January 27th, 2016. So wow. we have now been doing this for, um, uh, well, that's, that's seven years, right? We've been doing wow. that or six years. Yeah. Look at that. Crazy. We had, we had 10 links. <laughs> oh my gosh. So wow. yeah, we're, we're happy to be here. Um, but, uh, this week our topics, uh, include, and of course now I got down this rabbit hole to get back to my main page. Uh, uh, tech correction, which will be mostly nominated by the, the proposed TikTok ban this week. Some uh, information that we didn't get to last week on Section 230. Um, the weekly AI rabbit hole is open, so we will probably jump down that and, and see where it leads us. Um, some hardware news, some sad hardware news, actually. Some copyright intellectual property news, consumer rights news, uh, privacy, Google, miscellaneous. And then we'll end our podcast tonight with our so-called Geek of the Week. Dr. Fryer, where shall we start tonight? Can you please start with the Internet Archive article? Because I am maybe going to be just, you know, tearful and emotional in uh, hearing this 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 uh, decision, I guess, by by this uh, court. Yeah. So we reported on this last week that there was a lawsuit in play that 
um, four uh, traditional publishers have sued the Internet Archive, um, saying their website does not have the right to scan books and lend them out like a library. And um, Judge John G. Cotel uh, said the Internet Archive had done nothing more than create than create derivative works. And so would need would need authorization from the book's copyright holders, the publishers, before lending them out through the National Emergency Library Program. Um, the Internet Archive says it's going to appeal, um, but they also think that it's a really a blow to the library model in general. And and there's been actually a long history to this. Um, the last time I read an in-depth article about this, that that um, the notion of a library and what it's able to do and what it's not able to do goes back decades and decades and decades. This is not a new phenomenon at all. And it's one of the reasons why um, some libraries, and I know this is true of school libraries, for example, sometimes have to pay astronomical prices for books that that have lending rights attached to them. And there's been a lot of, of, of back and forth to, about this, but um, there is a lot of case law around this notion that a library, um, you know, has certain rights to be able to purchase or acquire a work and then create, make it part of its lending library so that people can you know, share the resource. Um, but uh, that hasn't always been, you know, entirely clear. And there, um, um, uh, basically, the Internet Archive, which has both been scanning books themselves, also been working with libraries that scan books, and they took the massive um, a book preservation project from Google Books and made that a part of its library. And what you can do is essentially go there. Not every book is available there. It's uh, most popular books are not, but for a lot of books that really have no commercial value anymore. You can go to the internet lending library um, at, at uh, archive.org and um, essentially check out a book for an hour or more, be able to page through it on an interface. Um, there, there's not a limit of an hour if you have a verified uh, visual deficiency or a disability that, that, that means it renders that um, you know, available to you for longer periods of time. And it really has transformed, um, I think, uh, especially works that are no longer copyrighted. And I mentioned last week that uh, as an example of this, um, uh, my wife and I recently uh, completed a very long planned project uh, that was only really available to us because we stopped traveling during the pandemic. But we we completely gutted our kitchen and started over again Uh um, with new fixtures, new appliances, and we were so excited. The project took uh, nearly three months to complete. We were without a kitchen for three months, um, and we, um, you know, kind of entered a renaissance of cooking over the last a couple of months. And I love old community cookbooks. I love old church cookbooks. I love old um, uh, nonprofit organizations that put out cookbooks. Uh, junior league, uh, uh, junior leagues across the United States put out wonderful cookbooks. Um, all the time. And in a lot of them, they have great kind of old fashioned Americana recipes that was the kind of food I grew up on. Um, and um, a lot of those cookbooks were in my house growing up. And I just really, really love the, the whole model. And so, you know, for example, I've probably pulled at least it pulled and saved at least 100 recipes um, from from that that I've used to to cook interesting and fun stuff inside my house. So um it is highly disappointing. Um, they are going to appeal the decision. 
And this is also not the first time that lower courts have um, uh, 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 ruled against libraries and for publishers. So this is part of a longstanding piece. So it's not quite a done deal by any stretch of the imagination, but certainly disappointing that um, that the district court judge in the Southern District of New York voted against or, 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 or ruled against the Internet Archive. So depending upon your situation, this may or may not be directly applicable, but you know, this idea of being able to take a work that you own and then change the format of it, but not loan any additional copies beyond what you've already purchased and licensed is kind of a key idea in terms of digitization. It has been. Um, when I was at uh, Texas Tech in the early 2000s, you know, we had a pretty extensive VHS collection. Uh, and not very many VHS players. And so at that time, we were uh, taking, and this is the folks in the technology department, um, you know, got, got this special, you know, VHS to DVD converter. Um, it was in the, in the process of, uh, of making all of those VHS tapes in, into DVDs. Again, not to put them online, not to, you know, even check out more copies than, than we had, but it was uh, simply a format issue. And so if the legal theory of this case would become more generalized, then apparently, you know, libraries, schools, educational institutions, just about anybody, you know, would have to basically buy the new digital copy instead of, of, uh, of switching the format on a personal standpoint. Um, you know, we at one point I, I was I had lots of CDs. You know, I was one of those people that that had joined a CD club in college. What was that called? BMG, and you got yeah, so many free, and then you know, collect them, and then we'd have friends, and you'd borrow them, and I'd love to make mixtapes and all this. But you know, at some point when MP3s came about, uh, I was ripping my songs when the iPod was there. Wow, a thousand songs in your pocket. Uh, I was I was ripping my own DVDs and and making those into into MP3s and then putting them on my player. And I had an iRiver and some other devices too. And so anyway, that again flows from this whole same idea that hey, I've bought it, but I'm just changing the format. And so with this judge saying no, this is a derivative work, and you've got to go pay for that. That is a significant departure from copyright and intellectual property laws that's been interpreted in our country. And so there's impacts potentially for institutions. Um, you know, with streaming music and, and Spotify and uh, you're, you're a Spotify user, by the way, I'm going to digress for a second. Have you tried the Spotify AI DJ? I have actually, and it's, it needs some work. And my guess is, is that this is, well, I, and I've used this, this term a hundred times in the last six weeks, this is the worst version it's ever going to be. So it's not great yet, but it's, it's getting there. And, um, um, it, it's a brilliant implementation of this technology, right? Yeah, because... yeah, no, it's 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 target on, and it'll be interesting. And I'm going to guess that we'll be able to choose a DJ voice at some point. You know, just yeah. kind of like you can choose what voice. Yeah, the DJ is not really when it's trying to suggest stuff to me. It's it's kind of in in some in left field most mostly. Yeah, but, that's that's my experience too. And yeah. I I well, and I listen to mostly mostly instrumental music during the day at work. In fact, I have a four or five playlists that depending on if I need to be super productive or not, um, or if I'm super focused or the kind of work I'm doing, I have these you know four or five playlists. I'm a huge fan of, of the composer Phil Glass, and he has a cu- couple soundtracks that are kind of my um, uh, for lack of a better way of putting it, my. Uh, um, my my productivity list basically like it's it's my go to um, and uh, so 
so when I put on the virtual DJ, the first the first thing it, it told me was that, hey, these are some songs that you were super into last summer, but you haven't listened to lately. And I was like, oh, that's great. That's super cool. And then the next one is that you seem to be super into classical music. So here's some <laughs> top top editors recommendations of classical music. It's like, well, I am. But like, I don't I, I'm, I'm guessing that one of the advancements here is you telling the DJ what you're looking for. Right. Yeah. Like I'm looking for some morning music with a beat to it. And um, and that's going to be different than maybe what I listen to in the afternoon, that sort of thing. And being able to sandbox your your preferences. Yeah. Um, I, I love the Hard Fort podcast now by the New York Times and Casey Newton, Kevin Ruse do that. And Casey Newton talked about, I think in the latest episode, um, having challenges I think it was him with digital hygiene when it came to his Spotify because he'll put on music when he goes to sleep and it'll play, you know, relaxing music for like, you know, eight, six or eight hours or whatever. And that just totally skews, you know, sort of his, his listening graph or whatever in terms of, and this is some music you love, but it's not recognizing that, Hey, that's, you know, when you're sleeping. And I think, I guess I can go ahead and preview this. Um, I, I am going to write a post about this. Uh, but I have, um, I, I, my post is going to basically be taking back my YouTube or taking back YouTube because this, this fits into this whole idea of what do you watch? What do you listen to? How do you train the algorithm? Um, and so for a number of months, um, I have been interested in, uh, and it's been probably longer than that, actually, uh, like emergency preparation prepper stuff. And then I've also watched, watched a number of, of videos that are like, you know, or firearms related. Uh, and so my YouTube got completely taken over where there was like nothing else. And so thankfully, uh, and, and this is the, the media literacy lesson from this, um, you know, by deleting things from your watch history, by uh, unsubscribing, um, I was able to, to, you know, very quickly, like within, you know, a day, um, convince YouTube, hey, I don't want to see any of that stuff. I created a separate Gmail account and then I subscribe to these channels. And, and when I want to go see some of that stuff, I'm over there. But I think that's a really interesting thing because when you have eclectic interests, um, you know, it, 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 the, these tools are not at this point refined enough in terms of their main feed algorithm to, to be able to say, oh, okay, I, you're, you're interested in looking at cooking stuff now or whatever. I mean, my, now I'm back to cooking and chat GPT and you know, a, lot of, a lot of other things because YouTube's discovery engine has been phenomenal for me and it still is, but I completely had lost that. And I was like, this is crazy. I've got to do something. And again, my good news is that it was possible to, um, you know, in, in fairly short order, but, I, but, it, but it took a while. You know, I had to unsubscribe from all those because I'm, kind of crazy about liking videos and, and, you know, it just, the, you're, you're training the machine, not only with the things that you're actually listening to or watching to, but the interactions that you're having yeah. with content. So anyway, it's, uh, it'll be interesting to see how that's going to evolve. And yes, that's a pretty nice thing to think about. Hey, it's the worst version we're going to have. So it's just better from here. Yep. Yep. Hopefully so. Okay. So, Hey, that was a long talk of the internet archive. <laughs> what do you want to do next? Well, let's just have a moment of uh, of of uh, sympathy. Um, uh, Intel co-founder Gordon Moore uh, died last week, um, and uh, uh, he is he is the creator of Moore's Law, which I know Wes, you talk about a lot. You want to talk about Moore's Law for a second? 
Sure. I mean, Moore's Law is this idea that uh, every 18 months we were having a doubling in uh, basically computer capacity. And so that was processors for a while. And there's been all these forecasts of Moore's Law ending, but then it was, you know, continuing. And even though processor, you know, chips and things like that, and I think that had to do with size and nanometers and, you know, different, you know, kinds of hardware, we've, we've still had this incredible exponential, not linear, but exponential or logarithmic increase in computing capacity. And that's been a huge driver of what we've seen with the internet revolution. So Gordon Moore, longtime um, uh, really guru of, uh, of, I would say, futurism and the revolution of computers, the, the co-founder of Intel, uh, lived a very long and hopefully rich life, uh, passing away at age 94. But he is a luminary in thinking about the ways in which technology influences our lives. And uh, I would predict that most of us who are going to continue to study and work in educational technology will continue to refer to Moore's Law as something that has been pretty important and um, a, 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 an important lens to use as we're trying to understand just how crazy, how crazy fast these changes are and what's driving them. Yeah. And I would say that that there is always, uh, uh, well, at least there has been for the last 15, 20 years, um, the notion that um, that that Moore's Law had slowed down in some way, shape or form. But I think the what has happened in the last three years with Apple and their release of, of Apple Silicon and their own chips, I mean, those were monumentally better than the Intel chips they replaced, which is a bit of irony in light of of where Mr. Moore, um, um, you know, spent his professional career. But it does, I think, show, um, you know, that that there's still there's still a lot to come. And my guess is, too, is that as uh, new architectures take off, like the ARM architecture, uh, at some point will likely be probably the preferred chip um, on most desktop and, and laptop devices that. Um, that's likely to help you know perpetuate uh, all this moving forward. So all, all that seems very much um, uh, in line with what he estimated. And in terms of trajectories and trends and things like that, you know, there's a couple there that they're sort of uh, latent inside what we were just talking about, the whole mobile revolution and the ways in which mobile chips and mobile technology has influenced the mainstream and, you know, helped us with, with battery life and um, how long our devices can be used. But also, um, uh, in addition to that, oh gosh, what was I going to say? My dog is making so much noise. And... <laughs> Rosie. Anyway. All right. Let's just for, totally drop the idea. I know you're a sweet girl, but you're distracting me. That may be a first. Here, she's going to bring me her bone. That's so sweet. There was something else that was a that it was a that was a trend line. Um, oh, oh, oh. Uh, in terms of chips, you know, Jason at one time was was Mr. Android and actually, uh, you know, helped convince me for nine months to use an Android phone. But we're both very much in the Apple camp and. What we've seen, and, and and Google has realized it, along with other companies, I think, is there's such there's such a range of benefit when you have a tight integration between hardware and software. And yeah. so uh, Apple coming out with the the M1 and M2 processors, and you know just manufacturing their own chips ha has been huge in terms of of innovation and driving the marketplace, and also just kind of setting, I think. Well, this is said as a real Apple fanboy, but setting setting the standard for what you know you're going to want in terms of integration, right? My my Apple Watch with my phone, with my with my iPad and my laptop, and my continuity, and you know all these good 
all these good things. Hey, how about the um, uh, FTC uh, gym and cable subscriptions? Do you want to hit that one? Yeah, so uh, this is interesting because this is something that started around the State of the Union time, and it, it's not a real shock if you are following politics that um, it's it's clear that President Biden is going to run for re-election, and I know it's a long-standing thing. Um, well, this this goes back probably 40 years that in addition to big things, small things matter to voters, right? And if you can see a direct impact of the federal government in your day-to-day life, you're much more likely to keep um, both your member of Congress and the president in the United States uh, uh, in office at the time. So the FTC has proposed a new set of rules that basically make subscriptions um uh, or I'm sorry, basically eliminates the practice of companies to allow you to easily st- start subscriptions, but then uh, make them difficult to stop. And um, they are uh, calling the new set of rules click to cancel. And essentially it says that you should be able to first cancel a subscription to anything um, uh, in the same method you subscribe. So in other words, if you subscribe via app, for example, by signing up in the app, you shouldn't have to call a 1-800 number or send a postcard or write an email or um, uh, you know, telepathically contact the company to be able to, to cancel that. And um, the, you know, there is a, a ton of, of businesses that rely very heavily uh, on the notion um of you know it's it should be easier to 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 uh to start something than stop something and i it's been a de- maybe even a decade or more since i last saw this statistic but the amount of money that the the fitness industry gets via gyms for people who are inactive it's it's a majority of of the profit for sure if not a majority of the income comes from uh you know those individuals and um and i've been a, a, a party to that as well and um, I will tell you that um, um, my own parents have been victims of this in that, you know, trying to uh, cancel something uh, like a cable subscription or a newspaper subscription and the agents that are there to stop you, maybe upsell you or give you a temporary cheaper price um, in, in, in trying to keep their customer um, can sometimes turn into a real barrier to canceling. And so I think this is great news. And I, especially now that I don't know the number of subscriptions I have, my guess is it's got to be in the dozens um, between streaming services and individual internet services. Um, in fact, I, my wife and I about once a quarter now go through our credit card statement and make sure we know what all the things are we subscribe to because of this phenomenon. And your Patreon subscriptions too, or Patreon, you know, support, which is awesome. Um, The worst one I had with that uh, was a email to fax. And I was kind of in a desperate spot where I had to get a fax to somebody. And I don't remember what it was legal wise or whatever. And there are these services, but, you know, quick online setup, take your debit card, credit card. But when you wanted to unsubscribe, no way to do it electronically, had to call the number, had to talk to the person. And it wasn't really quick. And it was just like, you know, that that's when I realized that this is an actual business model and it must be, you know, lucrative because, you know, anyway, that I'm, I'm glad to see that too. So. Yep. Absolutely. All right. Well, so anywhere else before we jump into the, the AI rabbit hole. 
Uh, yeah, let me give you a couple other kind of quick ones here. These are all okay. Google related. Uh, the first one is that Google has announced that they are launching something called a new ads transparency center. And I think this is really interesting from the standpoint of I can't imagine this is going to change broad behaviors, but under the notion that they're we get bombarded with a shocking amount of advertisement that I don't think we're really understanding or are really ready for. Um, there is a, it, it, I think there's utility in companies like Google that are essentially advertising companies, right? Like um, Google makes money via ads, as does you know every other social media platform that's quote unquote free. Um, but it, they now have an enhanced ad center. And so if you go to myadcenter.google.com, it's going to give you a lot of information that uh, about how you're being tracked and ads you've recently seen. And I love it because um, uh, it does show me, um, um, you know, why I'm getting various uh, advertisements. And so uh, it shows you the recent ads that have come from Google um, it also tells me my ad topics, and most of these are pretty legitimate. Um, uh, 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 I'll give you an example of uh, my most seen ads are phone plans, laptop computers, mobile phones and accessories, web development and design, um, gifts, household cleaning products, clothing, kitchen and, and dining, home appliances, photo software. I'm trying to think if there's anything truly embarrassing on here, which it doesn't look like there is, which is... Uh, um, uh, a, a good sign that that my targeted ads are are good targeted ads, right? Um, but um, you know, you can even see. Uh, oh, there's a sensitive tab. Um, okay, I'm I'm willing to I'm willing to talk about these. So the sensitive tab, uh, you limit ads on these topics. We do our best not to show you these ads when you're signing to your Google account, YouTube, or Discover. So. The five sets of ads um, that I get um, that are sensitive ads, um, and and it looks like one, two, well, three of the five of these I've turned off. I don't remember turning them off, but I turned them off. One of them is alcohol, which I've limited. Um, dating, which I've limited, um, not in market. Um, gambling, I've limited. I have allowed. A pregnancy and parenting, although uh, uh, that ship has sailed, and <laughs> weight loss of all things. So I'm not exactly sure. Um, I can't remember the last time I bought a a a. Uh, <laughs> I bought a um, a weight loss product per se. I'm happy with my stout stance in the world, but um, yeah, that that uh, that that's very interesting. And then you can also go and see the brands that are targeted towards you. And um, the let's see, the most seen ads include Samsung, uh, Amazon.com, Lodge, which makes cast iron. I'm a big cast iron guy. That's not a surprise. Apple, Lenovo, Intel, Monoprice, Logitech, Le Creuset, T-Mobile, Hoover. Like I, I, you know, I guess maybe appliances, uh, Sennheiser, which makes audio equipment, iRobot, Verizon, Tello, uh, mobile, uh, OXO, which makes kitchen equipment, Microsoft, uh, TSA, Paul Smith. I don't know if that's a brand name or a dude. Um, but those are all, and, and none of these are a surprise to me. So that, that they all kind of go with my, my overall shtick, but you know, I, I think it's important 
to put tools like this in consumers' hands, even if you don't really want to see this, but also, um, you know, uh, eliminating these. I think it's also, if I don't want to see an ad from someone, I should be able to say in this way, in this day and age, I don't want to see an ad from this folks. And you can just go on here and, you know, delete an ad. So I, uh, if I don't want to see, I'm trying to think of something on here. I don't know who Paul Smith is, so I'm going to delete it. So now I've said, got it. You should see fewer ads from this brand soon. That's great. Man, this is absolutely fascinating. And one thing, okay, my these are sort, I'm on the brands. And the top one is Honda, which is really weird. But right below it is Amazon. I, uh, my, my uh, elderly neighbor um, is, has had some health issues and uh, I'm mowing his yard and he's loaning me his mower. So today I mowed his grass and I mowed, mowed ours and, and we ha- and I had trouble uh, starting it. And so I, I just ordered on my phone right there, uh, you know, a new, whatever, I don't even know what it's called. Basically it's the string that you're going to pull to start the mower. Uh, and it was, a, it's for a Honda. That's wild. I that's the only thing and in interaction I can think of that I've had with Honda. So I order from from Honda, buy that on Amazon, and now that immediately appears as my most recent top brands that I want to interact with. So this is great visibility, a little visibility into this vast opaque cloud that we've talked about before. Um, I wonder why Epic Games is on here because I, I don't, man, I'm not a, a gamer. CCH is, uh, I'm Googling some of these. DJI, Church's Texas Chicken. Yeah. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> That's one of my top brands, baby. And, and then I'm, in, I'm under topics. Radio controlled toys and accessories. Standardized and, and admission tests. I mean, come on, seriously? language education man but you know there there's all these when you move to a new place it's interesting because you become aware of a lot of things and the ways that we signal you know like i I made another little cook with west video uh this weekend i wore one of my philmont scout ranch shirts i'm kind of cognizant a little bit of what i what i had my yellowstone hat on baby i was looking like an outdoor guy it's so, so interesting, though, because digitally, when we interact with everything, with our phone, with our laptops, with our tablets, any of this, we signal and the machine is listening. So I think this is extremely powerful. I think it would be very interesting because I don't think Google Apps is supposed to be doing anything with respect to student advertising. So if students, and I may have one of my kids do this. Uh, tomorrow is go to myadcenter.google.com and see what it says because it. I don't think they should be advertised and marketed to as part of Google Apps. In fact, the whole ad center is probably just blocked. It probably doesn't even work for them. I didn't even think about uh, Wes going to my, my work account, but I do go to myadcenter.google.com and what it takes me is um, uh, well... I don't even I don't even know how to respond to this. So I went to it and it said, "Welcome to my ad center, a place for teens and kids to learn about ads. Google doesn't show personalized ads to anyone under 18. Why am I seeing this? You let us know that you're under 18. You can review and adjust your settings at any time." So I'm wondering if it just because it is a Google education account 
that it's also not personalizing to me as an adult. Well, do you know what happened? And this this happened when I shifted out of tech director and you know talking to uh, our our new tech director. Google made a change, and this was either last summer, but I think it was the summer before last because I think it was the year before I left Cassidy that you had to go in and specify which of your users were over, I don't know if it was over 18 or just over 13, but that was something that the Google admin had to do. So if your account, and I think it defaulted to saying everybody was a kid under, under 13. So, because you have Google admin powers, don't you? For your organization? Yeah. yeah. So go in and check that out. But I think that you need, well, there, the capability exists and it probably would be beneficial to do to tag. Cause I think for YouTube and for other kinds of things and content uh, there's a, for default settings and everything like that, you basically designate who are adults and who are not. And I think that the default, if you don't go in there and set it is everyone's a kid. So pretty interesting, but this is, I think this is absolutely wonderful. This gives a greater level of visibility into this opaque world of um, you know, the, what do we, what do we even call this? The, the attention economy, the, the ways in which um, a vast opaque cloud of data is continually being built all around us based on the ways that we signal uh, what we talk about, what we order, the web pages we visit, the things we click on, cookies, all that kind of stuff. But I think it's I, I I think this is great. I like the fact that you can you know turn off or on you know these quote sensitive things. Um, I think it's fascinating that um, it is uh, you know letting you see you know brands and topics. You can sort those by uh, name, ascending, descending, most recent or most seen. Interesting. My most seen is Cuisinart. I don't even know what DJI is. I think it's an audio an audio um, program. Honda well, it's also movie. super interesting because you and I are not that far apart on our interests, right? We're both into cooking and we're both nerds, right? So, you know, and and, and this would be, uh, frankly, a really interesting exercise to do with your significant other, too, or your kids, for that matter, right? But because yeah. uh, they're not supposed to be targeting younger folks. But, yeah, I, I, I think this is, I mean, I know that I shouldn't trust Google, right like implicitly trust them with everything and you know in, in all the age and time but what i would say though is that i think the, it's these kinds of things that really increase the the, uh, the trust i would have right and you know you can dig deeply into facebook and find some of this data but i think putting this on one page for you to access is an incredibly important part of being a trusted uh, partner um, is what I would say um, uh, to the world. So yeah, and, I, I'm, I'm very impressed with this. And what's also wonderful is that you've got ways that you can interact with this. Like I'm, I am not really caring about Birkenstock or uh, I mean, yes, I, I do like fried chicken. That, that's weird though. You know, I went with a friend and bought church's chicken last week on like Thursday. So here it is. Yep. You know, this is one of the things people are saying, wait, my phone's listening to me. Well, it may just be that you, you know, search for something, you bought something. Man, it also is not comprehensive because when you change the sort order, so I went from most recent to most seen, I saw different things, but it doesn't let you scroll through page upon page. So you're not seeing an exhaustive list. Gardner's Supply Company. What the heck is that? Huh. Fascinating. Yep. Well, I think, so I, I think 
that, um, well, number one, when Brian Turnbaugh and I back in 2019 were contemplating, you know, what eventually became the Fruit Loop conspiracy, conspiracy theory unit and, you know, look, studying the moon landings and, and, and grappling with conspiracy theories, we were talking about how, you know, search results and the feeds that we see on social media sites, even on Google, um, but certainly on well, you know, Facebook, YouTube, are very different and customized. One of the things we need to be wary of if we're in, I would not do this with my, my middle schoolers, but teaching high school or, or adults or professional development. If we, you know, require or ask people search for this on YouTube, you know, search for this, you can actually be signaling then, you know, an interest in this and that becomes part of your digital footprint, et cetera. I have been using incognito mode more with my students because we actually check our Google sites to make sure the content that's been embedded there is viewable by everyone because you can't tell when you're logged in with your own account. But I really, really like having that conversation. Hey, does this mean no one can see what you're doing? No, the IT, you know, the, the folks we're buying internet from can see it. Our technology department can see it. Um, but like, but this, you know, because it's interesting teaching media literacy and asking kids to do things with their tech. If we're asking them to search for something, you know, if they're not doing incognito, it's going to become part of their search history, you know, and it's not like that's going to be a, a fatal thing, but it is, it, it's just, this is all fascinating and it's learning about how technology works, right? This is providing this ad center provides a window into how the attention economy is working. And, and I know, you know, we're going to probably get to some of it because we're still have about 15 minutes left, but you know, this is how the, uh, the world of social media is financed. It's, it's through this kinds of, this kind of targeted advertising. And this has implications for politics and elections and all other kinds of things too. So yeah, kudos for Google for doing this. Are there going to be many folks that are going to explore this and, and utilize it? I don't know, but Hey, EdTech Situation Room listeners, <laughs> if you end up checking out your ad center, let us know what you find out. Yep. It says, I love basketball. I really don't. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I would like to just do a couple quick hits here. Some other interesting Google news that's going on. Uh, 9 to 5 Google reported yesterday that Chrome OS and the desktop Chrome browser are getting a reading mode. Uh, which is awesome for those of you that are on Android phones. And I think this exists in the iOS version of, of um, Chrome as well. But essentially, reading mode takes all of the, the kind of cruft off of a page and gives you just the text. And um, uh, it, it's great, um, especially in the era where ads are becoming more intrusive and you know, there are technical and sometimes some ethical challenges with ad blockers. Uh, right now, I use a great plugin uh, that is the PostScript. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of it. Oh, the Post Light Reader, excuse me, which is a, a, a Chrome plugin that essentially does the same thing and then adds a functionality where I can send um, uh, send the... Um, um, La 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 la. Send the the results to my Kindle um, if I want to set that up. That's kind of nice, but um, that that's a really exciting uh, feature that's coming soon to a Chrome browser. I still think that there are interesting alternatives uh, to the Chrome browser. I've been playing with one lately lately called Arc that I I, I like um, that uh, kind of re envisions web browsing a bit and and also acknowledges that the web can be a very distracting place if you keep a lot of windows open 
Uh, but I'm excited to see that. And then the other news I would share uh, is also from 9to5Google is that Minecraft has announced that there's a Chromebook-specific version of Minecraft coming to Chromebooks. Uh, right now, the Android version works pretty darn well, but it is a f more full-blown edition. Um, uh, the cost, I, I think it's like 20-something bucks, um, if I remember correctly. Um, but uh, I'm sorry, $20 will be the, the price for that. Um, but... Um, the uh, what's interesting about this is that I'm sure that's of, of incredible interest to schools. Um, and if you've been surviving on the Android version of it, it's it's again, it's it's functional, but not the full blown experience. And my other understanding from reading a lot of the coverage on this is that they don't promise feature parity with the Windows version of of uh, Minecraft yet. But they say that it should be only a month or two behind on feature upgrades from the Windows version. So those of you that are using Chromebooks and want to do something in the Minecraft world, this would be an incredible opportunity to do so. Sounds good. Um, all right. Why don't we talk a little bit about uh, TikTok bans and social media, and then we we have to talk a little bit of AI. Come on, we're going to be the AI show. We haven't even done AI yet. I know, I know. We, we've we've made up. Really we've good. made up for that though in the past month. So yeah, yeah, ain't that the truth? Um, um. So I, 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 yeah, there are several articles. Um, the um the one the one I shared. I didn't get a chance to talk about a couple a couple weeks back. Was that Montana is going to ban TikTok? Um, Joining 31 and, other states. I looked yeah. that up today. Evidently, 32 of 50 states has some kind of TikTok ban today. Yeah. I think that was I'm, – I'm surprised. I didn't, I didn't know it was more than 50 – I mean, more than half. And, and despite it being a bipartisan thing nationally, it, it has been uh, pushed more or less by um, – the Republican Party in Montana has a supermajority here in both the House and Senate. Also, the governor uh, – governor's seat is, is uh, Governor Greg Gianforte is a Republican as well. And um, it's, been a little, it's been a little more partisan here than it's been nationally. But if you look at the hearings last week – and I don't think I shared an article about the one. hearings – uh, about the hearings last week. They – they were, I, I would call them bizarre, uh, the hearing, the national hearings last week. And one of the things that's really troubling about this is that it, it's really clear that a lot of our politicians, and this isn't necessarily a factor of age, I think it's a player in this, but I also think it's that um, our, our national political leaders don't seem to be all that tech savvy is the way I would describe it. And what a scary thing in the age of AI. <laughs> well, and that's part of the reason why, too, that, I mean, I, I do think we need to regulate tech, but regulating tech isn't about making sure there's a United States owner, although I will uh, talk about that in a moment. Um, I don't think TikTok, other than it's owned by a, 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 a an unfriendly government, right, um, or at least it's, it, there's access uh, uh, for an unfriendly government, I don't think TikTok does anything that's that unusual in comparison to other social media properties in the United States. And um, Al Franken made the joke, um, uh, he hosted The Daily Show last week, that um, you know, we should be reserving stealing your private data for USA companies, right? And he started chanting USA, USA. Uh, it was pretty funny, but I think it illustrates part of the problem here that 
most politicians that are pretty fired up about TikTok, and this isn't a matter of party, this is just being a politician, um, seem to be generally very uninformed about the way technology works in 2023. And, um, you know, as an example of that, you've probably seen the clip of uh, there was a, a, a senator that was asking the CEO of TikTok about whether or not um, uh, TikTok accesses your home Wi-Fi network. And the answer, of course, is, is yes, it does, right? Like, it has to get on the internet somehow. And if you're on a mobile device with a Wi-Fi connection, yes, it will access your Wi-Fi network. But so does Facebook, so does Google, so does every other tool that you use. Um, I've also noticed, too, that, and there's been some coverage on this, that um, I, I'll, I'll give you an example of this. Um there's been a lot of people that have talked about how they feel like the the Instagram and 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 like properties are full of of um, of smut for lack of a better word, right? And um and that they're constantly being fed um you know inappropriate content. So when I first hear those arguments, I'm thinking to myself, well, you know, what what is inappropriate content? And I've read several articles, and I looked for one tonight and couldn't find one that was, was articulating this as directly as this, is that a lot of those folks are probably getting smut, if you will, because they themselves are searching for smut um, and or at some point gave a, an indication of the logarithm that they were interested in, in, in such materials. And, um, um, you know, and again, I'm not trying to blame the, the the finger pointing here. I think it's a really complicated issue, but I am dramatically concerned that a lot of the folks that are pushing regulations on these companies are going to just try to ban TikTok or force its ownership to a U.S.-based company without dealing with broader privacy implications that I, I, I think really are much more worth our time. So I do have an article. This one is from Platformer, which is Casey Newton's publication. He's the one who does hard fork with uh, Kevin Ruse of the New York Times. And his article is called How TikTok Failed to Make the Case. And he says um, three main things in terms of this um, you know, testimony before Congress. And I, and I certainly concur with you. Jason, that you know, every opportunity that we see for lawmakers to interact with <clears throat> tech company CEOs and talk about these issues, that there's really not anything impressive that would, you know, let, let us feel a lot of confidence about them, you know, legislating on these issues. Um, Casey Newton points out that really it was almost impossible task. It was to to prove a negative that no one's data has been misused. So that's a really, you know, hard and difficult thing to do. There hasn't been much evidence of this. But the second thing he points out is that TikTok actually did surveil, um, you know, U.S. journalists. And so um, uh, they're, you know, that, that they didn't do themselves any favors with, with that. Um, and then third, basically, I guess they're trying to say that they have meaningful independence from ByteDance, but... <laughs> It's just not, I think he was the one, there was several, there was a tech journalist, I think it was Casey, who got to go to the ByteDance headquarters and, and hear this kind of briefing. But I mean, like on the wall, it was sort of like there were Chinese flags and there was, I mean, this is a Chinese company. So I'm, I'm also very concerned. I mean, we have a, we have sadly a very long history of anti-Chinese uh, laws as well as sentiments in the United States that, that go back, you know, hundreds of years. And 
we certainly see, you know, I think the United States and China, as well as with Russia, you know, really facing off on the global stage in, in some much more hostile ways than, than you know, we, we saw even five or 10 years ago. Um, but it just, it seems that, uh, like you said, regardless of political party, uh, it seems to be the, the uh, fad du jour or whatever for uh, lawmakers to be bad-mouthing TikTok. And it really didn't seem like this opportunity for the TikTok CEO to appear in front of Congress, you know, won uh, any, any points for them. So I, um, I don't know that he could have said anything that was going to help uh, at this point. And it is really, I, I use this as a wonder link today with my two media literacy classes. Um, and also we talked about the Utah law and let me, let me throw that out here. Cause I think I put that in here. Uh, maybe I didn't. Uh, Utah has just passed a law, which will take a year to go into effect that will give parent, it'll put a curfew. So basically you're going to have to prove that you're 18, not 13, but 18. Uh, some analysts think with a driver's license, so that could have impacts for anonymity on the web. But if you're under 18, you're going to have a curfew that your social media uh, programs will shut off and not work after like 1030 at night or something. Parents are going to have access to all of your private messages, as well as all the content that you publish. Um, and, you know, Utah, the actual governor of Utah coincided or, or you know, made the timing of his announcement line up with the uh, testimony of the, the ByteDance TikTok CEO, you know, juxtaposing these two things. You know, we've seen Europe uh, with GDPR have privacy laws and California has some privacy law. Tech companies certainly don't want to have a, a crazy kaleidoscope of, of, of laws that they're going to have to, you know, rule on. And we've got what is it, the 10th Amendment that talks about interstate commerce? I mean, usually when things cross state lines, the federal government steps in and regulates so that you don't have, you know, 50 different rules that are that are affecting like a product that's, that's being sold internationally. Uh, there are products here in terms of services and certainly things that are sold, you know, via social media and these platforms, etc. So I, um, you know, I, it's really it will almost certainly be challenged in court if that law, uh, well, the law, it's a law now. It's its not a bill. Utah has, has actually passed this law. The governor signed it. I think, and maybe I did. Maybe did I put it under the tech correction? Because that's where it belongs. Maybe I didn't. Okay, yes, Vox. Utah's social media for kids' law yeah. could be coming to a state near you. Actually, maybe you put that one in. Um, I, I did, but I it's, yeah, and it covers that in some detail. And um, the most stunning part about that, um, the article was pretty good, but also if you watched any of the, the, the national news media coverage, I mean, they brought in kids to testify about how terrible the influence of social media has been in their lives. And I will say, maybe controversially, that this would be less of a problem if we had taken on more responsibility in schools to help kids understand these technologies. Perhaps, but I think we've also continued just to see the march of the attention economy, capitalism, yeah, you know, just and, and the power of these apps. And just like we were seeing in the ad center, you know, just a far reaching ability of technology companies to be able to keep track of each and every, you know, nudge that we have. So, yeah, this this is appropriately under the, the tech correction. And 
Um, I think that this Utah law, which is, again, not a bill, it is a law, yep. uh, really is in a, a category apart from the others. This isn't, you know, a, sta- a governor like we had in Oklahoma say, no TikTok on state networks or whatever. And you've done that in Montana as well. This is this is something that would actually force the the creators and designers of apps to design their apps differently as far as how they onboard users um, and then what they and the fact that they're going to have to have you know, parental accounts and those parental accounts are going to have to have, you know, access to the child accounts. And it's, uh, I don't, I don't know that we've ever had anything like that. That's kind of unprecedented to have a state law saying, Hey, developers of apps and websites, we're going to tell you how you have to design, you know, your, your app. And, and certainly we've had the whole thing about 13 and you, you know, it's supposed to be consent, but Anyway, it's. Uh, I think we'll talk about about this some more because it's um, it's going to be challenged. And but I don't. I, I haven't read a legal opinion yet to to know. Um, I, I think we can safely say that there's going to be a lot of youth that are going to be quite offended. And there's even danger, right? I mean, there's youth that that could be in danger if uh, you know parents had complete access to to you know their. Uh, private messages and things like that. And I, I think I've said this to my students today. I, I think that's, that all human beings have a right to privacy. You know, I think that that is different in terms of parents and those things get negotiated differently in families. But to, to think that, you know, just because you're under 18, you have no right to privacy is just like saying you don't have a right to life or a right to speech. You know, the Tinker decision. Hey, I'll cite my my, uh, you know, law class that I did take uh, in, in education, you know, says that the, the student's right to free speech doesn't end at the schoolhouse gate. If you're being disruptive to the educational process, why then the school can step in. But the school does not have the ability to completely censor and, and stop you from having any kind of free speech rights at, at all, especially if you're you know not being disruptive to the educational activities that are taking place. So I think I, I think. I think we're going to be talking about this a little bit more after tonight. Yep. Here, here. Well, Dr. Fryer, there's one article I want to mention um, about AI. And and we I think we could talk about it in, in greater detail next week because there's a lot of discussion here. But this is a bit of breaking news uh, on AI. But in the last 24 hours, a lot of leaders um, – um, in, in tech and elsewhere, uh, including Elon Musk, um, have um, um, said that that they would like us to pause, I believe it's for six months, on the continued development of AI technologies until we come out with rules and, and maybe more updated standards of what protections should be put into place. And um, the, the idea here is that... Um, uh, uh, 1,100 people um, that signed the letter said that um, we sh- it's going too quickly and that we need to um, uh, stop it now before, uh, before it gets out of our hands by putting more protections into place. And this letter was signed by some pretty heavyweights in the tech industry. Uh, Mr. Musk, I mentioned earlier, Steve Wozniak is on this list. Andrew Yang, um, former presidential candidate, is on this list. Um, the CEO or the co-founder of Pinterest, um, the CEO of Getty Images is on here. Um, uh, uh, Daniel Allen, who is a professor of the Edmund and, and Lily Safford at Center for Ethics at Harvard is on here. I mean, these are, these are heavy hitters in, in tech and academia. And I have to say, 
I agree completely with this notion that I am super interested in the direction we're going in. And I'm even more interested now that we've had, or I've had an opportunity to be in some rooms with some teachers in the last week to talk through this. Uh, there's a lot of interesting possibilities here, but let's be super frank about the situation. It is still a scary, scary time. And there's a lot of people that think this technology has the incredible potential to easily go rogue. And so I'll, I'll, I'll kind of leave that there. If you have any thoughts, Dr. Fryer, please. Yeah, the velocity uh, with which adoption of ChatGBT uh, has happened with OpenAI is unprecedented. But the biggest thing is that we just don't understand it. Yep. <laughs> and uh, there, there's a, I just, uh, and I think tweeted uh, to you on this one, um, there was a video by a red uh, red teaming member, somebody who was red teaming. His name is Nathan uh, Lebanitz. He's on the Cognitive Revolution podcast. And the stuff that they have just at the very beginning of this saying, you know, the early version of ChatGPT had no guardrails. And so when he asked, how can I kill the most people? It didn't hesitate. It just gave a full on oh, answer. Yeah. And so... That's what so many people have been trying to do is trying to push the guardrails and trying to, you know, figure out the limits and can they, can, can you get it to do things that it's not supposed to do? Um, and the answer appears to be yes, you know, it, it can. And so um, my last thought, I listened to Ezra Klein. Uh, he recently did a, uh, my thoughts on AI and it's an article that he had written. He's a New York Times columnist, but he does his Ezra Klein podcast and then he does his columns. Well, he actually, I think, read an article. So I'll put that uh, in the show notes. But what he said is he's had enough conversations with AI developers and really, really smart computer science folks who have talked about the fact that they do not understand fundamentally how all of this tech, how this is working, but this is, <laughs> they compare it to summoning an intelligence, which sounds fairly demonic. I mean, it is, it is something that qualitatively feels different. And I think probably Jason, you felt this. I certainly have when I've been interacting with it, that this is not Google. This is not a search engine. Nope. This is something really, really different and incredibly powerful. And so like we know with basically every powerful technology and tool out there, it's going to be able to be used for good and for, for bad. And, and the idea of slowing down is what uh, I've heard a number of people say. And, and like you said, this you know letter with Elon Musk and others signing on to it uh, I think makes a lot of sense because it really seemed. I was shocked that Microsoft was so quick to hook ChatGPT up to the internet when I had heard, you know, employees of OpenAI say we're, you know, keeping that away from the internet and, you know, really trying to protect that. And then, boom! What does Microsoft do? Just immediately, hey, let's put, let's plug it into Bing so we can have a competitive advantage. It seemed irresponsible to me, and it does seem that Google is taking a more measured approach you know, with Bard, but they still have a ton of pressure. It's that whole, you know, Sundar Pichai code red, we've got to come up with a response. And so perhaps if we have this kind of pressure to slow down, uh, that can help. But I think overall, the trajectory of where we're going is this technology is like, it's being birthed, right? It has been birthed and it is just going to get better and better. And so unfortunately, I do not see a prospect of this technology in the long term being kept out of the hands of bad actors and the guardrails being kept on. I don't 
I don't see that. And I wish I could leave you with a more optimistic note, but yeah, it's hard to see how that is going to play out, you know, in a completely positive way. Yeah. Well, and, and I would also say too, that, um, well, earlier versions, I think of, of open AI were open sourced. So, you know, the, in a lot of ways, the technology is, is out there, um, that, could be a more dangerous version of it. Um, hey, I, I also would mention, uh, Wes, that I did um, I did get in the beta of Google Bard, um, and I've been playing with it on and off. I would say it feels like a six-month-old version of ChatGPT. It's also severely limited in the size of its both of, of its input and response, which makes it infinitely less useful to me. Um, but um, you know, it's it's all. Um, it's all super interesting, but um, yeah, I, I I think this will change education soon and forever. That that's absolutely true. Um, I I wouldn't change that even if we slowed it down. But we absolutely have to be a little more thoughtful about where we're going here, and we can't wait around to regulate this like we did the internet and social media. In fact, we really haven't regulated either the internet or social media. Um, you know, thirty years after the internet became a thing, and um, twenty years after social media became a thing, and we just can't wait around on AI. I'm sorry, but we can't. What else? What? Of course. Hey, we're we're going a little over time, but that's okay. Uh, in that in the hard fork podcast with uh, Casey Newton and Kevin Ruse, yep, one of the, the, the discussions that they had was talking about Bard and talking about this coming to Google, right? And yes, it's exciting to just interact with ChatGPT and and ask it different questions. But when you think about your own data and hopefully being able to do this in a secure way, right? Hey. Uh, Bard, um, you know, uh, take every message that was, bef- you know, written, you know, three years ago and older and, and archive that being able to do that in plain language, Bill Gates, I think in the last week they, they published it's behind the tech and it's Microsoft's podcast with their CTO. And I've watched about half of it, <clears throat> Bill Gates, you know, which, you know, he kind of, he, 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 he's gotten a lot of things, right. He's gotten a few things wrong, uh, but he's a pretty smart guy. Uh, he really thinks that the predominant way that we're going to be interacting with our computers from now on is in natural language, which, uh, you know, with, with coding, that just sounds, it kind of sounds scary because of how context is so important and the precision that you need to have with coding. But when you think about these tools being embedded inside Gmail, inside Google Docs, inside Google Calendar, and the tools that we live with, and, and a lot of us do, we, we just live with these every single day, I think that is going to unleash some, some next level, wonderful constructive power and possibilities that are that's going to really be some productivity enhancements. And I really do look forward to that. But unfortunately, we're probably going to get the bad with the good. So Bard is, uh, it's coming. But uh, yeah, it'll be very, very interesting to see if we have any kind of regulatory response to this because, um, oh my gosh. Yeah, what's, I don't know. Sometimes it it takes a crisis in order to, to, you know, to get regulation. And I think I heard someone was, oh, this was talking about banking. I was, this was another Ezra Klein, uh, or maybe it was the daily, it was a daily podcast talking about, you know, bank, bank collapses and, and things in, in our monetary system, but saying, you know, what has basically forced regulation in the past, it's been a big crisis. So hopefully it's not going to take that, but 
if you use history as a guide, uh, we're probably going to have to have some kind of bad crisis happen and then say, oh, okay, I guess we need to have some regulation to stop this. But hey, maybe we'll, we'll have cooler heads prevail and folks will be able to put the brakes on stuff. But like you said, it's, um, it's hard to see that this thing is going to slow down in the long term. And even if they try to do it for a little bit short term, I don't know what that looks like. Okay. Well, Dr. Neifer, uh, you got a geek of the week for us. I do. Yeah. And of course I've actually closed my window, which means I'm going to have to fill some time here while I bring this back up. But my, Oh, I know it was, um, Canva, Canva last week announced, more insanely cool tools, many of them backed by AI. And if you're a Canva user like I am, and, and by the way, Canva's revolutionized my workflow, right? I keep Canva up all day, every day. And um, it is such, it's so improved the collaboration for visual design in my organization that I can't even begin to describe where to start. But they added in a bunch of wonderful new AI tools last week. And their, their, their presentation is called Canva Create. It's about an hour long. I think it's worth your time to watch it if you're a Canva user. So check it out. Really worth your time. And I don't even use Canva. So what am I doing? I'm just lost over here. Canva's um, amazing. Okay. Well, I should really just choose one, but I don't. Um, in Machines We Trust, favorite podcast that I uh, like to listen to. And they have been nominated as a New York Festival's finalist for this episode. The episode is called AI Births Digital Humans. Uh, and it was published today on March 29th. Um, and so there are just all kinds of really, really uh, powerful, you know, companies and technologies that are discussed in that podcast. I really recommend it. Interiorai.com will let you take a picture of any room in your house, Jason, and then ask it to visualize a different style. And that is just a really, really cool thing that I haven't tested yet. I was going to test it before the show. And then lastly, uh, yes, I did put it in. Um, I've only watched about, I don't know, um, about 20 minutes of this. Uh, but this is OpenAI's ChatGPT discussion with Red Teamer, Nathan Lebanitz, and Eric Torenberg. And that was the uh, show that I was actually just talking about where they discuss what it was like to interact with the unguardrail, non-guardrail version of ChatGPT4. And um, yeah, will we be able to keep the guardrails on Probably not, but it remains to be seen. Where can folks find you, Dr. Neifer, when you're not giving a keynote at NCC at uh, NCCE or showing up here on Wednesday nights and uh, you know showing off your large book collection in your office? Sure, I, I really probably need to get back to where I have a website again. Um, I took it down, and I think I'm redirecting Neifer.com to my LinkedIn profile. Uh, so at some point, I'll have Neifer.com/after, which is Dr. Fryer's great um, strategy. Um, um, but best play to find me is probably Twitter, Tech Savvy Teach. I'm also a Mastodon at knife at mastodon.cloud. Yes, you can go to westfriar.com slash after and find lots of links. But I have decided at this point to not leave Twitter. So W Fryer, but I'm still cross-posting to Mastodon. Because, by the way, we didn't get to the article. And sign up for our Substack, by the way, because you can get an email with all those articles that we not only talked about but did not talk about uh the uh advertisers are not coming back to twitter so if twitter doesn't make money uh it ain't going to survive but anyway but things do go through bankruptcy and they still live on and twitter is such an important thing it's hard to imagine it completely going away but still enjoying mastodon but that's uh i'm not planning an exodus there so this has been the edtech situation room um we are a weekly 
almost weekly Wednesday show. Sometimes we take a a week off, but usually we're here uh, and we love to get feedback. So if you've listened to the show, whether you have joined us live or you've checked us out um, after the fact, you can always find small 32 kilobit MP3 audio versions at our website edtechsr.com, as well as approximately 100 meg compressed video versions, but those are easy to find on Facebook as well as YouTube, and you can generally find us, we think, anywhere your podcasts are curated. So we want to thank everybody for your contributions and for your interactions with us. Congratulations again to Dr. Neifer for a fantastic keynote, which we hope is, you know, there's more to come because uh, his wisdom... You don't, you know, not many folks get a standing ovation for their, their keynote. So that's a good sign. So congrats. And until next time, we encourage you to stay savvy and stay safe. We'll see you next time on the EdTech Situation Room. Good night, all.